I see you, yeah you, flipping through all the podcasts, looking for something different. Tired of those with all the catchy phrases, a one-size-fits-all quick fix schemes that never seem to fit. My name is Anthony Hart, and if you are like me, you want more than a moment. We are looking for a movement of groundbreakers and world changers who are tired of the status quo, willing to throw it all up to see what sticks, willing to ask a question before pointing a finger. This is your invitation into a collection of thoughtful ponderings posed to make you think, one-on-one conversations that challenge you with fresh perspective, and roundtable discussions where sparks fly as iron sharpens iron. Intrigued? Pull up a seat. We've been waiting for you. But don't get comfortable. You might be up next. In the Red is now in session. Let's go. All right. So we're going to make a semi-promise because I don't make big promises when it comes to the sermons. But uh, we're going to try to wrap this up in the next two weeks, Rick. (laughs) Those of you that are new here, you'll realize eventually why they're laughing. No, I really feel this. Um, I think we'll see. Lord, we're trusting you. We've been in a series called Altered Living, and that is how our lives are altered through an altar. And we've talked a lot about over the last couple of weeks some Old Testament examples of people who experienced a moment with God and their lives were changed because of it. Now, we also find those same people who were changed, weren't completely changed, because there were still some, some hang-ups, some limitations, some fallbacks. Uh, so I'm here to tell you that even in your moments of altering, you still need growth. Even though you meet God in one place and you get this revelation of who he is, that will only be good enough for a time for a season because there will become a depth that is required. Amen? How many of you remember your first moment with God and you had this connection and there's something, this moment, you're like, oh, I needed that. But then it was almost like it ran out after a while or you hit a different struggle or you got to a place where uh, a different season of life where something deeper was needed and you're like, oh, I need a little bit more. Anybody ever feel like that? That's good. It's what we do with those moments It's why the first moments or those altering moments are so important. It's not to go back and say, okay, I got to go back and get another dose. He was good at that moment. I got to go back and get the same Jesus I got the first time because guess what? You didn't lose that Jesus. It's just that version or that who he was in that moment, that revelation of who he was got you to this place and now a deeper connection. First time I met my wife, guess what? I need a deeper revelation now from the first moment I met her at Peabody's. Those of you that are new, that's where I met my wife. God gives grace and mercy in all areas. But I can remember the first time I laid eyes on her, I I thought I knew everything about her I needed to know. I got news news for you. That was not true. There is a deeper revelation through our life together every season, every moment. We had kids, I need a deeper understanding of my wife. She needed a deeper understanding of me. Our relationship with God is no different. It is not a one-stop shop. It is a not we meet him once, 
We give our life to him, and instantly we get this magical download of who God is and all his glory. We leave all this stuff behind and just walk it out. Like, this is amazing. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to heal people, all the things. Nope. But guess what? The limitation is not God. The limitation is us. And we've talked about this all this year. Our limiting factor is this. You have not because you ask not. You seek and you will find. We stop seeking because we feel like we have enough. And we do have enough in a moment. We have enough. I'm just getting right into it before we get into Scripture. But in that moment, we have enough for right then, right there. Ooh, this is so good. It makes me feel good. I'm not a bum. He loves me. And I messed up yesterday. But he still loves me and he forgives me. But you know what? As you strengthen and walking in him, more is required. Apostle Paul puts it in a eating perspective. He says, I would love to give you meat to eat, but you're still drinking milk. Because it is a progression. We are babies. When we meet Christ, it is a maturing phase that begins to occur. When you meet him, it is baby central. You just, ah, got the world at your fingertips and you don't know how to do anything. I got these hands and I just don't know what to do so I'm going to stick them in my mouth. But it is up to us to begin to mature and to grow. That's his heart for us. Why? Because the world needs a mature church. Well, we're just dropping stuff all over. The world needs a mature church. Because the moment you walk in maturity, that light that he puts in you, that moment of connection begins to grow brighter. And the things that you've overcome in your life become a testimony that there is a God who sees them, loves them, and can help them overcome. Y'all ready to get into the Word today? I'm going to read this scripture. We've read it every week, versions or different portions of it. I'm going to read Acts 17, 24 through 27. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles today. And this is Paul talking to uh, a group of non-believers in, in Athens, Greece, and trying to explain to them that this God that they've been searching for has been in their midst all along, that this little altar in the midst of all their big altars, it was this little altar that said to the, the unknown God. And he said, what you feel like you don't know, if you just look for it, you'll find it, which is exactly what we've been talking about this morning. In verse 24, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. What is required for salvation? If you declare with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. So he is explaining the beginning of salvation to them. If you, instead of allowing all of these false gods, these made-up entities to be your Lord, and you really seek after the one who can impact you bigger than, and you allow him to be the Lord in all the areas that you've given power and authority to these other people. Think about that. What he's saying is to this unknown God, now you say, hmm, I'm going to let him be Lord of, I'm trying to think of Roman gods or Greek gods, uh, I'm going to allow him to be the God of thunder, the Lord of thunder. In your, in your heart, what I'm actually saying is the things that you had, the altars you had built to different things in your life. What you're actually saying is 
When I realize he's God, now I begin to take notice of all these other altars and I begin to give him authority over the area that really there was no God there ever before. I give him authority over my social media because it's been my Lord. My Lord. How many of you are driven by social media? Don't raise your hands. But anything can become our Lord if we're not careful. Whatever, your sports teams. Cowboy fans, I don't know who the God of Cowboys is, but Jerry Jones is not a God. I only pick on Cowboys fans for, for some reason. It don't matter how good or bad you are. Whew, they control your time, attention, all the things. But as you begin to recognize who Jesus is in the individual moment, slowly you begin to declare him Lord over all these places. You tear down these altars, as we talked about with Gideon last week, and you make him God. So really, all these altars become one big altar to the God being restored. Y'all with me still? Okay. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That's a hard statement to say, but God doesn't need you. Ooh. We don't talk about that in church a lot. Like, we want to say that. Rick, God needs you. That puts a lot of pressure on you, right? If you fail right now, well, it goes, well, no, that's not going to happen. No, his plan's bigger than all of us. He wants us. He invites us. He sent Jesus to die for all of us with the knowledge that everybody he died for would not accept it. So if he needed us, that would be, ooh, we'd be in just this impasse where we're like, he's waiting on us. No, he's waiting with us. He wants us to be a part of it. But if we're not, we'll talk a little bit more about that today, is why. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It's in our blindness that we begin to touch and feel, and ugh, that's when we find him. It is a powerful statement of fact that Paul gives. It is a declaration that he is there, and if you feel around for it, you will find it. You will find him because he's there. He's been in the background maybe of your life. You look back over life. How many of you were saved and you look back at the moments? I talked about Peabody's earlier. I can look back at some of those broken moments, CJ, and say, he was there. I don't know why he was there because that place was crazy and I was doing some silly things. But you know what? He was there with me. If I could have just seen it, it would have shifted my whole perspective on all the things. But yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Today, if you know Jesus or not, I can assure you, he is not that far from you. I want to get into another scripture today in 2 Peter 2. And I have 1 through 12 and before I talk about that, I want to share with this thought with you. Because if you look at the Old Testament version of the altar, what we find on that place is a lot of death. If you look at the Old Testament altars, 
when they would bring those animals. Those animals were dead and they were burnt on these altars. So in our mind, what we can get locked into is the death of the things that lay on the altar. Now there's power to understanding that something has to die, but here's the rest of the statement. In order for something to live, Something has to die in order for something to live. In those days, they would bring this animal, and that animal would stand in the place of a person or a a whole country of people for their sin. And it would be killed, and in that place of death, now this group of people has been given life. But that was only good for a week or a year, depending on the sacrifices. It was just kicking the can down the road because... God knew these people were going to continue to mess up. So he gave this ability for them to give the sacrifice in hopes that over the year, maybe they would get right. I gave you 10 commandments. I gave you access to a God that wants to help you grow and get better, yet you continue to come back every year with the same response. Does this sound a lot like Christianity today? It's, It's funny how we don't learn lessons from dummies, and we end up in the same space a lot of time. So then Jesus represents that same sacrifice when you get to understand he represents the death of our sins or the death to our sins is a better way to put it. You have to die to something in order to live in something. So in this case, Jesus came to, rec- to, to take on the sacrifice of our sins forevermore. And what's our requirement? is to walk in life, which he did for us. He goes, dies on a cross, and that could have been the end. They could have buried him, and everything he said about coming back to life, everybody, yeah, I think he did. I mean, the stone's on the tomb, so who are we to say? Who are we to say whether Jesus is in there? Guess what? If that would have happened, we are some nosy people nowadays. There have been people digging in that all over the place. I just watched Indiana Jones the other day, the first one with my son, and archaeologists, some nosy people. We'd have found out real quick whether Jesus was in there or not. Maybe that'd been better if the stone would just sat there for some years, and then finally somebody went in there and said, oh, it's not here. It's been sealed all this time. But anyways, it's not how he chose to do it. But he had to demonstrate life. And I was talking to somebody the other day that's like, I'm just struggling with this, this Jesus thing. How is this, this guy who came and did all this, I, is he God? How do we understand this? So think about this perspective. I'll just give you this little snippet. So this group of people who walked with him, he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to, be, I'm going to rise from the dead. They see him die. What do they do when he dies? Scatter, right? Instant fear, anxiety. Why? Because I don't know if he is who he is. He said he was, but I'm not going to get killed. I'm not the Christ, so I'm going to get away from it. Then he disappears from the tomb, can't find him, and he begins to show up to them. Now, a lot of people say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body and then lied about him showing up to them. What happened between Peter and the other disciples hiding in fear the moment he died to dying for his name? Something happened between A and B. Peter Jesus being hung on a cross, he said he was the Messiah. It makes me feel good, but now somebody's looking at me and asking me if I'm willing to die. What's Peter say? Mm -mm. No, no, I'm out. Cusses somebody out, rolls out. Something happens between this point and down the road where Peter is crucified in the same way Jesus is, 
just upside down because he didn't want to bring any shame on Jesus. He didn't want to be put in the same place as Jesus. So what happened between there and there? Something happened. These stories that we think are real have to be real because something changed the trajectory in that place. In other words, something altered them. They had been living with Jesus their whole life, but in that moment, it wasn't the cross that altered them. It wasn't the altar that altered them. It was the life out of the altar that altered them. Death only got Peter to the next place. Where'd he go? Right back to doing the life he did. This is the problem in Christianity. So many people meet Christ, they go to the cross, they feel bad about something they did, but guess what they do? End up, if you don't have a deeper reflection on who he is or an intimate connection with the life he brings, you'll go right back to doing what you did before. That's the place he wants to connect. That's the place he wants to give you the purpose of the altar is it is life. You have life on the other side of this mistake. You have life on the other side of this decision. That's what I represent. When you bring it to me, lay it at my feet, I want to invite you into a place of life. But you got to choose to take that step every day. Okay, y'all with me? So Peter now, it's funny that I mentioned Peter, but now we're going to read his letter. So Peter, this is not just a story to him. This is a powerful revelation that he's walked through. Peter did not just come up with a story or say, yeah, this is something Jesus said to do, and you should probably do it too. No, he's physically walked this journey out. Like I said, cussed some people out, ran away when Jesus died, got a personal invitation, a personal meeting with Jesus afterwards. You know you have done something if Jesus comes to you personally. Andrew, I saw what you did. I told you he was going to do it, but... I'm coming to hang out with you personally. I'll give you a one-on-one -on -one extra study session for what lies ahead. So Peter in this moment has grown. So as he's given this letter to the church, he says this. In chapter 2, 1 through 12, he said, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In other words, these are the things that controlled our minds these are the methods we use before Jesus. These are broken things. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a powerful statement right here. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, what we've done in church is we've watered this thing down and I wonder today, how many people have truly tasted the Lord? Not just around some people who have tasted him, but truly have tasted, have truly been in a moment of connection and passion. Why is that? You know, we talked about this this morning, Rick, about our power of our testimonies. When you have a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, guess what? Somebody can't talk you out of that. How many of you have been through some stuff, and when you met Jesus, like it was a drastic change of some mindsets and some things in your life, and somebody will come to you, well, Jesus ain't real. Let me tell you about a God. Peter, let me tell you about a Messiah that I did not earn this thing. I messed it up in every way possible, did exactly what he told me to, and he shows up, and he shows up, and I'm naked. 
Like he was in the boat fishing. He had his clothes off. Said he was putting his robe on to get to Jesus. Like I got to cover myself up. And Jesus just made him dinner. So in Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the invitation to salvation. Is He doesn't want you to just feel bad about what you've done. He really wants you to feel good about who you've been made to be. He wants you to be seen as his child, as a child of God. The invitation is there, no matter what you've done, to get back to that place of purpose. And it's in that moment that you begin to taste some things. So what do we talk about the three altars that were built in the Old Testament? First, we talked about Abraham, and he built an altar. And what did he call uh, Jehovah? Anybody remember? Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Anybody have parents that just always provided for you? And in that moment of provision, how many of you felt love? 100%. I had parents that, man, I will tell you, as a small-town pastor, my dad had odd jobs. He was a uniform delivery man. He was a pest control guy and doing full-time ministry. He did the jobs. I remember him leaving church. Some nights I would go with him in pest control. He would be at church preaching. We would leave after so he could go pray, uh, spray uh, a grocery store for termites because he was, he was doing the things that had to get done, the small, the jobs, for, so he could provide for me. I never went a moment where I did not have what I needed above and beyond. I can remember getting things. I look back now of wanting something, a clothing as I got older, uh, you know, because it's a status thing to have the cool shoes or the cool jeans. And I can remember now if I look back and to see the time that my dad sewed into working the hard jobs, not getting much sleep. One, because he was called to do something. He would not forsake the calling to do what he'd been called to as a pastor, as a preacher. And he pursued that. But he also provided for his family above and beyond. I can remember getting the baseball bat that I wanted, or my, my brother getting the baseball. He was a better baseball player than me. Um, maybe I got the book that I wanted, and he got the bat, the bat that he wanted. But there was never a place. I remember the computer I got when I was a junior in high school. Some of y'all are like, you didn't just get a computer. No, they were big and expensive, and I got it, and I didn't even know what to really use it for. I used it to type up a term paper, not well. But there was a provision there. Why did he provide? Because he loved me. Abraham, what he experienced in that moment of provision is a God who loves. Who loves. So then, now we look at Moses. Moses built an altar and he said, Jehovah Nisi, or the Lord is my banner. There is a joy that exists when you operate under the banner of heaven. What do we say about in his presence, there is a fullness of joy. If I'm under his banner, if I'm following him, then I am in the presence of God. Moses was saying this, he's got a cloud every day, right? A fire by night. Tell me you're not in the presence of God. Moses went up and was spending time with God. He had experienced in a moment of holding those, those, that staff up, holding his arms up, tell me that's not a presence moment to begin to see as you raise a, it's like a lightning rod. Raise my hands up. I see the battle happening and we're winning. Like this moment of presence, this joy that occurred to know that I can't be overwhelmed if I'm with him. 
I cannot be beaten if he's called me to this place, told me to stamp here. Tell me that's not a joy. Every struggle in your life, if I told you you were with God and you were going to be overcomer, is that not a joy that just flows through you? There's no fear and anxiety of falling short, no fear and anxiety of failure. Would you say that's joy? It's not happy that I got this or I don't. Or it is just a depth. And then last week uh, we talked about Gideon, and he said, the Lord is my peace, or the Lord is peace, Jehovah Shalom. So now we think about the fruit of the Spirit, the first three, love, joy, peace. So in all moments that we see these altars, these connections, these moments of encounter with God, we see him imparting the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the nature of God. So when he's saying taste and see, a moment of encounter is a moment of impartation, not a moment of expectation. Why is that? Because realistically, most people come to Jesus and they're not expecting the amount of love or the degree of love that he gives them. Our expectation of love is drastically different than what he wants to pour into our life. Our expectation of provision is drastically different than he wants to pour in our life. Our expectation of joy. Most of us come to Jesus, if you want joy, you're actually asking for happiness because it's based off an emotion, not a heavenly intent. Peace, we actually don't really want that shalom that we talked about, that wholeness. We just want to be okay in the moment. And he wants to give us something bigger. He wants to give you something, Aries, that in that moment, he connects with you that just invades the next moment. It begins to change how you operate. So moments of encounter, moments of intentionality with him actually opens our eyes to a God that is bigger than we could even imagine. So these altar moments in the, in the Old Testament, we begin to see the nature of God being handed down to us. Abraham, you got provision, but you can still seek more. There's still more moments. And then you see moments like um, Jacob, where he had the altar, when he connects with God in that place, when he had the dream of heaven coming down and, and going up, angels in a ladder, we call it Jacob's ladder. But in that moment, he woke up and he said, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. In other words, this was way more than I expected. This is not what I was looking for, but wow. And he builds an altar right there. And then later, as his life goes, he brings his whole family back here and said, y'all need an experience at this altar that I met God. You need to know that God is real. Not that I'm real, not my, my God, your God. I need to make it yours. So in this moment, what Peter is saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you have moments of revelation, moments of encounter with God, you're going to experience the fruit of the Spirit. And when you taste it, it's different than you could ever imagine and you're going to begin to see other people who are in need. Y'all with me? Y'all are quiet today. This ain't an aisle-running sermon, but y'all give me some okays, amens, say will, mm, anything you got. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. This is a declaration on who you were before you met him. A living stone. You were living but you were rejected. You were not dead. 
You were still living. You still had the beat and the breath. Regardless of how down you were, you were still living. A living stone. What he's actually doing is speaking life into you and what you were created to be, not what you had become. This is a declaration. You are living. But you need to hear that from what we're about to talk, the cornerstone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look at your neighbor, especially if it's your spouse. Say, I am chosen and precious. Now, look back at the person that said that to you and say, you are chosen and precious. We just solved a marital spat, amen, in the name of Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we see the transition from bringing your junk to the altar to making sacrifices on the altar. There's a transition that this is, I believe, is where we have to get. Those who were bringing their sacrifice to the altar was in a place of death. I sinned, I got to do this. The one that put it on the altar was the priest who was the only one that was able to even walk into the presence of God in a moment of cleanliness. If he wasn't clean and he wasn't positioned to be in the presence of God, what happened to him? He died instantly. It puts an onus on us now to not be in a place of continual sin and brokenness because the call is for us to walk into a priesthood, which is a call for us to get stronger and closer and more revelation of who he is so we can begin to carry that. This Christian walk is not easy, but the good news is he's with us every step of the way. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. You build a building, they started with one stone, and it built off every direction to make sure you had a foundation, but also a reference point. Jesus is that reference point. That's why he came in earth to live the life he lived, to die the death he died, is you needed a cornerstone to realize my building has been all jacked up. I got to start somewhere. So when you meet the cornerstone, you begin to change how you build your life. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. This is a very, you've got to understand this place. Because this will be the transition in your life from believer Not from non-believers. There's a lot of people that say they believe, but this next statement can be very indicative of your posture actually for through uh, towards God. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a declaration on who Jesus is, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You are offended by this when you don't believe this. I'm going to say that again. Because if Jesus was the Word, as in the beginning of John says, the Word came and dwelt among us, the Word, if you're offended by the Word, it's because you don't believe it. Now here, as we just talked about, it is a journey. When you meet Him the first time, 
When you bring whatever it is that brings you to Jesus the first time, the first moment of Abraham provision, um, Moses banner, uh, Gideon shalom, whatever peace, whatever, whatever the thing you're seeking in that moment, when you get that, you believe that. So how do you begin to believe more? What we say earlier, seek and you will find. Continue to seek, right? So the revelation is something as you continue to seek, you begin to become less offended by what this is. You be, the, the transition from non-believer to believer goes from offense to challenge. Have you ever been offended by somebody because you didn't know somebody? But when you actually reflected on what they said, you were actually challenged in your spirit. The offense wasn't because of what they said, it was of how you received it. Anybody with me? I get this all the time. If I don't know you and you come up and you see me slipping and you say something to me, whoa, who do you think you are? Mm -mm. I don't know you. But deep down in my heart, if they actually said something true, I'm chewing on it and I'm mad because I should have caught it where they did. And I'm just, don't you tell me nothing. It happens with our kids sometimes, right? Who do you think you are? I'm the parent. And God's standing up there like, yeah, but you need to act like it. We hate for our spouse to hold us accountable, right? I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Morgan knows when she's hit a note because I'll just be quiet. She'll call me out on something, and I'm just like, I used to get offended. I'll be honest. I used to, no, you don't even know what you're talking about. Now, because I know her and that posture, it talks about that depth. There's a deeper relationship with us that's really grown I'm talking the last year. This is a space that we had to grow together in. You have to change your posture on how you come in. She used to come in all accusatory, and I'm going to come back in defense. But she began to come in in a language of love. You know what? This is just something I see. And then she leaves it at that. At that moment, I put it there, and it's between you and God. I stopped getting offended, and I started being challenged because I realized her heart was not to attack me her heart was not to put me on a cross and put me out in front street and say look what he's doing that's what happens when you're postured that way because most times you do that because you don't want somebody to see something else in your life because the moment she began to hold me accountable she opened herself up to accountability so we have a relationship a deeper relationship of accountability this is what should be happening in the church but it's not because you know why it's not happening in the church because it's not happening with us and god we want to be offended by this word because we don't believe it. And then we say we believe in the word of God, but we realistically don't believe in the word of God. We don't trust it because we're offended by it. And in church, we begin to say some things in this and make it, put it in our own words. So really we're offending people that's not with the word. It's our perception of what the word is. I know I've done it. I've hurt some people with what I thought the word said. Guess what? I got offended by God when he began to challenge me in that way. I had to grow. I had to spend moments with him. I had to understand his nature, his heart. I don't jive with all of it right at the beginning. I had to learn and grow in it. Why? Because I had altars built in my life. As I begin to realize there's no value, there's no God there, 
I've been worshiping my own body. I've been worshiping somebody else. I've been worshiping a limited thing instead of giving access to the God to it. Did it begin to change my whole trajectory? Because the truth, the love, the light of who God is is not meant to make you stumble or be offended. It is the cornerstone for you to be built off of. It is to challenge your math. Well, God, I've already got this blueprint built up. This is where I was going to start. And he's like, yeah, but this is where I put the cornerstone. You don't know how much time and energy I put into this blueprint and building this for my life. I've put a lot of work. I've already begun to build the whole first structure, and now you want to shift and change everything? Nope, it's good enough without you. And he's like, if you would just believe me, if you would just trust me, if you would just spend some time with me, if you could understand the why behind what I'm trying to do in your life, why I'm trying to undo some of these things. And you're like, I'm good. And he's like, no, you're actually not. The reason you're that way is because you were hurt here, because you went through this of a struggle here. You had a broken model here. Whatever it is, the things that we found value with along the way, he's trying to help us undo. He's trying to help us to trust him in those areas so we can begin to walk out the best version of us. Oh, taste and see. That's the moment of connection. That's the moment with this word where that impartation begins to expand us, challenge us. It shifts our expectation to a place where we can't even expect what's next. Getting us back to the childlike place. Remember that? You wake up on Christmas morning, I have no expectation because it could be crazy big. This big fat guy come down the chimney and he brought me all sorts of gifts. Just to, ah! I never had the jet I wanted, but I always had some good stuff. I want to go jump over to Hebrews 6. I want to finish it up with this thought today. Because now we find the writer of Hebrews. And as we talk about this from the perspective of Gentiles, of non-believers, now we see the shift to him talking to the people who should have known better. The book of Hebrews is to the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, knew who God was in provider, knew the God uh, under the banner, uh, knew the God of uh, shalom. They knew this. They knew these stories. They proclaimed to know it at least. We believe this, but it was not absent or it was absent in their life. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to declare something to them to draw them into a deeper relationship. This is what happens in the church now. Now we're not Jewish by any means. And I think this is the missing point between this scripture and what I'm about to say is we realistically don't know. We're not Bible scholars for the most part in the church. We know enough to be dangerous. We know what our pastors have told us, but maybe we haven't dove into this thing and really studied it. Why? Because there's that pushback like, uh, how is the God who just killed an army in the Old Testament the same one who comes? There's questions that your flesh will always ask, and you just got to spend time with him and like, okay. So there's that transition, but for us, Right here in Hebrews 6, 1 and 8, I want you to hear this. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This is an invitation to mature, to not be satisfied with just meeting him, being around him, 
Think back to Jesus' day, the people who followed him. There was a difference between follower and disciple. Followers would follow him until it was uncomfortable. Would follow him until it got late. And then they went back to the comfort of their bed. They went back to their house and the way they knew life. And then maybe like, hey, we got to go see Jesus again tomorrow. But then they woke up and was like, ooh, I did not get enough sleep. Oh, they did not. That bread and fish yesterday was not that good. Right? Suddenly, what we are, comfortability, all that, nah, I'm just going to hang out on Jesus. He was pretty cool. That was a good show. But it's probably just going to be a lot of the same deal. And Yeah, I'm good. Go right back to doing what they were doing. There was something different for the disciples, those who began to follow him all the time, day and night, wanted to just be at his feet when he taught, didn't need to see the miracles anymore, just needed that place of connection. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, I want you to hear everything I'm about to talk about. If you want to know where the church is, Christian church as a whole is divided. I'm about to tell you every one of them. Quiet. Every argument we have in the Christian church is about to be addressed. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. Well, what does repentance mean? How do I do it? How often do I do it? Where do I do it? I just named probably five denominations right there. You can pick whichever one you want depending on how you repented or how you were told to repent. From dead works of faith toward God. Oh, works, we just got into a whole other situation, right? Faith without works is dead. Your faith is not defined by works. Oh, we got two schools of thought now. If you're not doing anything, do you have any faith? Do I have to do anything to define my faith? I believe in God. See, we're going down this rabbit hole, folks. The writer of Hebrews knew what was about to happen to the church. Why? He's talking to a group of people who knew. I'm talking, for those of you who have been in church any amount of time, to a group of people who know something. And of instruction about washings, how to baptize, when to baptize, how often to baptize, where do you baptize, who baptizes, what do you say when you baptize. The laying on of hands. Do you lay on hands? Do you not lay on hands? Do you speak? Do you have to speak? What do you do? Healing. Can healing occur? Can healing not occur? Y'all see where this is going? I'm outlaying the Christian walk right now. For those of you that may be your first time in Christian church, I'm sorry. Yes, we are a gaggle of fraggles in the Christian faith. And we are more defined by what we think differently than one another than the one we pursue together. This is what he's saying. If you really want to mature, all those things happen, but all of those things will be declared to you. And what you really find is you're putting more value on the things than are the one who taught them. Spending time in a place of encounter. You're putting more and more boundaries between somebody before they can get into the same space as Jesus. In other words, you just erected the veil back up. You've put another wall between Jesus and that person who just needs to spend time with him. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Ooh. Are, is Jesus going to come back pre-tribulation, post-tribulation? How many of y'all don't care when Jesus comes back as long as he comes back? Okay. 
Y'all in the same boat with me. I would love for him to come back pre-tribulation. If you don't know what that is, go start diving into Revelation. But you know what? Realistically, I honestly don't care. And it's not affecting my relationship with him if he decides to come back post-tribulation. Most of those people are just going to be cranky because they got to go through some something they just wish he to come back pre-tribulation. It's funny how we can read the same thing and decide when and where he's going to come back. And then he said, no man knows the time or the day. Just when you think you know, you don't know. All of these things that begin to divide us. So what's maturity then? If maturity is not how to be baptized, how to repent, how to, when are I'm going to come back, if you're going to be here or there, nope. What does he say? Maturity comes in a declaration of who he is to you. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, then now you understand that you are in relationship with an almighty God who declares life in you. When you begin to declare him Lord of your life, when you begin to tear down the death altars, the broken things, the limited things, giving him access, he begins to pour life into you where there was death. And it's in that place you have to understand that he died and came back to life. And so that your life, the things that are dead in your life, you can let them die so he can bring life in those areas. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What this is saying is... How can you put what is alive back on the cross? It changes your mindset. I want to put your sin in a visual format. You know what your sins were? We like to say that our sins were nailed to the cross. I think our sins were the nails that put Jesus on the cross. When they took Jesus down, guess what stayed on the cross? He don't need the nails anymore. He don't need your sin anymore. So why do we go pick them up and gather them? Well, this put Jesus on the cross. I don't care. He's not on there anymore. There is life. These are things of death. Our sins are things of death. The moment you taste and see life, the moment you taste and see love, joy, peace, in a level like you've never experienced before, suddenly the value of the death things, the value of the sin, the value of the broken... I'm not offended by these things anymore. It doesn't mean that I completely agree, but I'm learning. And God, I want to know you more because I want to understand it. Because you died for me. You came back to life for me. And if you said this is wrong, then I'm willing to walk it out. I'm willing to talk with you. Y'all with me today? It begins to talk right here after this. It says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. I'm reminded back to a parable Jesus told. 
talked about the parable of the sower. He said there was a, a sower with a bag full of seeds and he began to throw it on the ground and there was ground that was just hard and rocky and the seeds just didn't even take at all and the sun burned them out. See, that's the complete non-believer. I got no time for this Jesus guy you're talking about. I've heard all the stories about him and all he is is an angry guy who wants to tell me I'm wrong. Anybody know somebody like that? Yeah. Second one he talks about is seed that's been thrown on the ground with thorns and weeds. And as it's starting to begin to grow, those begin to choke out the seed because there's no roots, there's no depth. The weeds and the thorns have deeper roots than the seed. This is a life filled with sin. That it, it's, it represents the altars in our life. Death occurs to this life-giving thing because these have deeper roots. These are more entrenched in our life. These things are more valuable than what this thing represents. But he said there's fertile ground. And when you drop those seeds in there, they begin to grow and life occurs. And what happens as a result of life? Life. Life. Seeds drop off the plants. More life. Wheat gives seeds. More life. More life. Because of fertile ground. The journey for us as Christians is many of us, when we didn't know we need Christ, we were that hard ground, but something occurred away, and maybe it was life or something that happened to us in life that beat the ground up a little bit and gave a little bit of hope that something would grow and that seed fell on it. But if we didn't transition to this place of removing the things that pulled the life out of it, anybody had pine trees in their yards? Anything else grow around pine trees? No, why? Because pine trees take all the water. All of it. It's exactly what he's talking about. The same rain falls on that ground, but the limitation of blessing is based on where your roots are. So as you begin to transition in your life, you see the need, if you understand this parable, you see the need to be fertile. You see the need to be a place where good things can grow. In order to do that, you've got to plow your ground. You've got to get below your surface. You can wear whatever you want on the surface and be as jacked up and broken underneath as you want. So many people have wounds that they won't show to anybody else, and they just, everything's good. No, you're not. That's why nothing grows, because underneath you have this harsh exterior on the outside that you'll never let God get to your inside. Why? Because people hurt you there, and you just believe God's going to do the same thing. I can assure you, he won't. He's not out to hurt you and wound you. He's out to heal you. He doesn't want to point out your faults and say, look, there it is, broken, messed up, jacked up. He wants to invite you into a place of healing. He brings life, not death. But you got to trust him and begin to break up that harsh exterior 
You need to be in a community of people who you can walk that process out with. Who does it with the heart of God. The next transition as you get in that place, you begin to realize, okay, I've got some things planted, but my soil is not good. That's the place of immaturity to maturity. The transition begins to come to say, I want all of him. Jesus said, I wish that you were just hot or cold. Because if you're lukewarm, I'll do what? Spit you out. I'm telling you, the Jesus that we want is not the Jesus we get all times. It's hard for us to understand a Jesus who is loved to say something like that. What he's declaring to you is, I need you to be a nation of priests. I need you to have an altered life because there are people that are waiting. And your reach is limited because of who you're reaching to. Your impact's limited because of what you're allowing to impact you. Your love is impacted because of the amount of love you're receiving. The God you're serving is just a fraction of who I actually am. See, that's the purpose of this altar. That first altar moment is a declaration of He was there when I needed Him. And if He did it once, won't He do it again? If he was exactly what I needed at that time, won't he be exactly what I need now? If he provided in that space, won't he provide for me again? Suddenly your pursuit changes. You're not there because you have to anymore. You don't go to church because you're obligated to anymore. You don't go to church so people can see you anymore. You don't come to church so the pastor can see you or to make you feel good with the sermon. You start seeking God. I just encountered somebody recently and they said, I'm sorry I haven't been at church. And I said, I see your posture. You don't have to apologize for not being at church because you've been in the presence of God. I saw how you responded and it's different than the way you used to respond. You can go to a whole lot of church and never change in that regard. But when you've been in the presence of God, it shifts you. You couldn't buy that at Walmart. You couldn't get that in a great sermon. You can only get that in the presence of the Lord. Then you start coming to church for different reasons. Maybe today I don't need to get anything, but what if you position me to be something to somebody? I didn't have to have my hand raised in on my heart today, but I got to be on somebody's back. Or maybe today I needed to be here because I needed just to know that I'm not alone. And I need whatever word got said. I need to sing that song again to remind me. I need to remember the altar in my life. Or maybe you just needed to be challenged to take the next step. Because if the first step was worth it, won't everyone else after that? Father, we thank you today for the continued challenge. We thank you that you're not done with us yet. We thank you for the love, grace, and mercy you pour into our lives. 
I pray that it would shift and change our heart towards you. That we begin to trust you in all areas. That if there's anything that has offended us, anything that stands out to us, the hard truth, that we realize those are the things that you want to walk through us with, not beat us over the head with. Those are actually the things that you want to use to plow our ground. To trust you as the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow. God, I'm thankful that you don't require everything of us in the beginning because there's so many of us today, including myself, that would be thrown along the wayside. Thankful that the invitation is still there today for each and every one of us to continue to walk in your presence and to know you, to trust you, Father, be with us this week in our quiet times. Be with us in our study times. Be with us when the lies of the enemy come to our ears that we can hear your words over his, that we can quiet the noise and get into that intimate place with you to trust you. Where there is shalom, a wholeness of your peace, where there is joy in knowing who you are and there is love in your provision. Father, we give you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go.